Jesus said, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. What does Jesus's mission look like here? What's his mission here? What does Jesus's mission look like here? What does Jesus's mission look like here? What is Jesus's mission here? How do I know what Jesus's mission is? This morning we have uh, Doctor Brett Gleason. Is that your first time being introduced as Doctor? It, it kind of like. Yes, I was hoping it might be. Kind of cool. So Brett is uh, the director of multiplication church planting with the Great Lakes District of the Evangelical Free Church, of which we're a part. And so he serves Illinois, Indiana, Michigan, parts of Ohio, and uh, really oversees. In well, why don't you tell us what you do? You know better than I do. Sounds good. Yeah, so I serve as director of church multiplication, as Pastor Josh said. And so basically, I get the fun job of working with pastors who are starting new churches and the churches that are supporting them and sending them out and supporting them by sending people and team and prayers and work teams and financially. So those are some of the things I get to do. Yeah, Brett does a great job interacting with churches as well, just helping uh, in so many different ways, but that's really your, your key focus yep. is, is new church starts and uh, revitalization, all that good stuff. How could we get, be more a part of that? Or what, if you were going to say, hey, you guys need to kick it in gear mm. and, and help in this, how, what would you tell us? Yeah. What's some ways? Yeah, thanks for asking. So actually, there's, there's two things. To start new churches, one, you need sending churches. We see actually in, in the book of Acts, the church of Antioch being the great sending church that sends off Paul and Barnabas on their, first, on their missionary journeys. And part of that was evangelization, sharing the gospel, proclaiming the gospel. And it was also starting new churches. So we need churches to be like the church of Antioch to send out people to reach new communities, new peoples with the gospel, new generations. And second, to start those new churches, we need pastors to hear the call of God, to be a part of this new work, to start a new church. And so one thing that you could do um, is in Luke 10.2, we read that Jesus says, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers or the workers are few. Therefore, pray to the Lord of the harvest to raise up workers for the harvest field. So one thing you could do is set your alarm for 10.02, for Luke 10.2. If you're a morning person, maybe it's 10.02 in the morning. If you're an evening person, maybe it's 10.02 at night. And just when that alarm goes off, maybe it's every day, maybe it's one day a week, if you could just pray that the Lord would raise up workers for the harvest field and how you can play a part in that. Yeah, that's a great, great idea. Hey, why, what if somebody said, well, why do we need more churches? I see all kinds of churches all yeah. over. Yeah, there are a lot of churches all over the place. And actually, two things. One is there's no better way than planting new churches to reach people with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And two, those new churches... They're not competitors. Oftentimes, you know, we kind of think of the marketplace of business that there's competitors. But any church that proclaims the gospel is not a competitor. They're fellow co-laborers in the gospel. 
So they can actually help bring revitalization and renewal and revival to the community that they're planted in. Yeah, amen, that's good. Hey, one last thing about Brett. We discovered about a year ago that my uh, pastor of my home church and Brett's youth pastor are the same guy. So some of you, if you've been with us uh, overseas to India, you've met Doug, and uh, Mm. Doug was Brett's youth pastor. And so I'm gonna send him a screenshot from today and just see what see what he does. Just say, hey, look who is here. That'd be cool. Yeah, that'd be kind of we'll fun. We'll see if he remembers me. He, I bet he will. He I might. He's pretty we'll good see. at that. Yeah. He is good. Brett, uh, thank you for your ministry and uh, planting churches and, and growing churches here. We look forward to hearing God's word from you. All right, so sounds good. Let's welcome Brett. All right, well, it is good to be with you this morning and thanks for your warm welcome. And uh, Pastor Josh, thanks for the invitation to come and be with you here today. Our, our passage of scripture is from Acts 15, and it's a long passage from verse 1 all the way through verse uh, 35. And I'm actually going to walk through it slowly as, uh, as I preach. So instead of reading the whole passage, we'll actually just kind of work through it as we go along here. And... Uh, um, this passage, it really addresses a key issue that the new church was addressing at this time. And that was how are Gentiles, how are non-Jewish people to be included in this church? What role, if any, does the Old Testament Mosaic law, especially as related to dietary restrictions and things like that, play in the Gentile inclusion, and and this passage gets to the heart of that very question. And in the book of Acts, as you've observed over the the time that you've been spending walking through this, um, you've noticed that Luke really focuses on the geographical expansion of the gospel as it goes out. In Acts 1.8 we read, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And Luke records the advance of the gospel and the growth of the early church as it goes out from Jerusalem to the ends of the earth. In fact, in, Luke, in, in Acts 6-7, talking about the growth of the gospel in Jerusalem, we read, and the word of God continued to increase. And the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. And a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. So we come to the end of Acts 6, and the gospel has gone out in Jerusalem. And then beginning with the stoning of Stephen, the um, Christians, especially Greek-speaking Jewish Christians, were expelled from Jerusalem. They fled, and they took the gospel with them. So in Acts 9.31, we read, So the church throughout all Judea, excuse me, Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up and walking in the fear of the Lord and the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. So the gospel has already gone out to, through Judea and Samaria. And then picking in Acts 10 and beyond, we see about the expansion of the gospel to the ends of the earth. In Acts 10, 45, Luke writes, and the believers from among the circumcised who had come with Peter, were amazed. Why were they amazed? Because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles. That's, that's people like you and me. Even we 
got to receive the Holy Spirit. In Acts 12, 24, the word of God increased and multiplied. So in chapter 13, we're introduced to the church at Antioch, and it plays a key role in our passage in Acts 15 today. And this church was founded by Greek-speaking Jewish Christians who had fled from the persecution. They took the gospel with them and they began leading people to Christ. And so the church in Jerusalem, they heard about this and so they sent Barnabas to go check things out. Is this really legit? And so he gets there and he finds that their faith is genuine. And so he recruits this guy, Paul, and Paul, as you know, had been a persecutor of the church who came to Christ. He recruits Paul to pastor this church with him the church of Antioch. And this church becomes the great missionary sending church of the New Testament, sending out Paul and Barnabas on their missionary journeys to share the gospel and start new churches. So at the end of chapter 14, where you were last week, we read that when Paul and Barnabas arrived in Antioch after their missionary journey, they gathered the church together. And they declared that all that God had done with them and how he had opened the door of faith to the Gentiles. And so last week, Pastor Josh shared with you this key point. God sends us to everyone. While only some will accept the delivery, there's great joy for those who do. Did I get that right? All right, I got that right. Good, I took good notes. Took good notes. But you know what? There's not only great joy for the person that receives the gospel, and places their faith in Jesus, there's great joy for us too. Just even sharing the good news is joyous because we get to share with them the experience that we have with our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So as we come to Luke 15, the gospel is on the move. The Acts 1-8 vision of the gospel going out from Jerusalem to Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth, it's happening. It's being fulfilled. And then, in verse 15, 1, we read this. But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised, according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. The brakes just got slammed on the advancement of the gospel. All the men in the church winced. We haven't heard this before. The unity of the church has been threatened. These teachers from Jerusalem are basically saying you must become Jewish first before you can be a Christian. My friends, this brings us to our first point. And if you have um, your bulletin, where did I put my bulletin? You might be following along here. So first point here, There is a danger of adding to the gospel message to preserve our cultural identity. As the text I just read from you said, some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. Now, it's quite honestly understandable, excuse me, understandable how they came to that conclusion. Sorry about that. You see, at the time, 
there were two groups of Gentiles that were allowed in the temple of Jerusalem and in the synagogues. The first group were God-fears. They believed in the God of the Jewish people and Yahweh, but they, they didn't fully convert in that they didn't practice all the requirements of the Mosaic law. But there was a second group who were proselytes. And not only did they believe in God and Yahweh, but they fully converted. Their men were circumcised according to the custom of Moses. They practiced the dietary restrictions that were required by the Mosaic law. And unlike the God-fears who could go into the temple and the synagogue and observe what was happening, the proselytes, they could fully participate in religious life, in Jewish religious life. So these Jewish Christians, they genuinely believed they were from the the party of the Pharisees who were strict adherents to the Mosaic law, they, they genuinely believed that Jesus was Israel's promised Messiah. They believed that. But as Pharisees, they thought it was necessary for all believers in Christ to keep the covenantal sign that was first given to Abraham and then to Moses. And so their reasoning must have been something like this that if circumcision was a sign of the covenant since Abraham, who was before Moses, it must be a sign of the covenant for us today as God's people. This had been the cultural marker that had made the worshipers of of Yahweh, of God, the one true God, distinct from the religions of the people that surrounded them. And as Kent Hughes so helpfully puts it, The Pharisees banded together to make sure that no one slipped by Mount Sinai where the law was given on the way to Calvary. But to quote NASA, Houston, we have a problem. Which brings us to our second point. Sorry about that, I'm I'm learning this slide thing here. I'll, I'll get it here by the end of the day. All right, so which brings us to Our second point, the problem is that adding to the gospel results in a false gospel. So it's not surprising then that Paul and Barnabas strongly object to what these Pharisaic Christians are teaching. So we read in verse 2, Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them. All right. This idea that you have to do something in addition to believing in Jesus to be saved threatens the very heart of the gospel that we believe. It threatens the very heart of what we hold dearly as Christians. Now Luke doesn't record what Paul and Barnabas said here in this debate with them But we have a pretty good idea if we turn back, or if we turn to the book of Galatians, to Paul's letter to the Galatians. So evidently these Christians were members of the Pharisee party. They'd been following Paul and Barnabas along. So kind of after Paul and Barnabas plant a church and then get stoned and kicked out of town and they go on to the next village, these, these Pharisees come and they're teaching the new believers that they need to follow the Mosaic law. And so Paul, writing the letter of Galatians, which 
most scholars believe happened before the Jerusalem Council here in Acts 15. In Galatians 1.6 we read, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want you to distort the gospel of Christ. Here Paul is saying that if we add anything to the gospel at all, we're deserting God himself. His point is that this fundamentally different gospel if we add additional requirements onto it. Because it's no longer our faith that saves us, but something that we do in human effort. But why is this a false gospel? After all, they're still professing faith in Christ, it's just faith in Christ and something else. It's a false gospel because it brings into question the very heart of the gospel. In Galatians 2.15, that's kind of cool. Galatians 2.15, we read, we ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. Because by works of the law, no one will be justified. So justification by faith in Christ alone is at the heart of the gospel. Now justification, it's not a word we use very much in our vocabulary, so let's just define it for a moment. Justification, it's a legal term, it's a term out of the courtroom that refers to God making people who are sinful and worthy of condemnation like everyone in this room, including me. Acceptable before a holy and righteous God. A sinner is justified when he or she places their faith in Christ. So without justification by faith in Christ alone, there's no gospel message. Without it, we are dead in our trespasses and sins. Without it, we are not reconciled to God Without it, there is no salvation. Without it, we have no hope of heaven. As Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, for I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. So it's out of their deep pastoral concern for the believers, for the new church in Antioch, but believers everywhere, for every church, including this one, that we don't add anything to the gospel. It's essential for the advancement of the gospel that we don't add faith in Jesus plus something else. Now, from our position, it's easy to see the error of the Pharisees who claim that one must be circumcised to be a Christian. However, if we get closer to ourselves, our own cultural moment, it it might be a little bit more difficult to see how we might be adding things into the gospel that become barriers for people to believe in Christ. Christ. 
when we look around the world, around our country, we see a, a lot of division. We watch the news on our screens or however you get it. It seems like we're divided around along political lines in our country, generational lines, racial lines. And as we enter into this next presidential election cycle, I'm sure the division, the feeling of that division will even be heightened. But sadly, the division that is all around us has come into our church, not necessarily this church, but our church in America in general. You see, it seems that some Christians are adding things to the gospel to assess whether a person is really a good Christian or not. So at the risk of stepping on some toes, let me give two examples. Political affiliation becomes the identity marker for whether someone is a believer in Jesus Christ. Today, it's almost become synonymous that you, if you are an evangelical Christian, that you are a Republican. But for some, to vote Republican is to be an oppressor of the poor and the disadvantaged. Another issue. We have four boys, my wife and I do. Our oldest is off at college, just finished up his second year, and David, who's with me today, thanks for being my traveling buddy, is heading off to college this fall. And then we have two more, Caleb and Joshua, they're middle school, well actually high school now, and middle school. We just graduated from elementary school after 15 years. And we've chosen to public school our kids. Now there's some that say, well, if you really want to be missional, you've got to have your kids in public school. That's the only way you can really live evangelistically as a good Christian. But there are others who are saying, no, no, no. You need to homeschool your kids. That's how you can protect them from the indoctrination of the public schools. And each family, each parent, it might be even different for each child, needs to make that decision out of their own personal convictions. And that's good. Where we get into trouble is when we start measuring other people up for that choice. You see, the problem is not whether one votes Republican or one votes Democrat out of personal conviction. It's not whether one homeschools their kids or sends them to public school. The problem is when we make these things a litmus test for whether someone is a Christian. That's when we get into trouble. So as we turn back to our passage, we realize how serious of an issue this was. The whole church wondered whether they needed to give up bacon and shrimp to have a life pleasing to God. And last night, I'll, I'll share with you, I had some shrimp, and it was really good. I was thankful for it. I'm glad that, that I got to have that. So we read in Acts 15.2 that Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. In other words, this needs to be settled once and for all. We can't just settle this in Antioch because the troublemakers aren't in the Antioch church. They're coming down 
from Jerusalem. So we've got to go to the Jerusalem church. We've got to settle this matter once and for all. So being sent on their way by the church, they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles and brought great joy to all the brothers. Remember what I said? When we hear about people coming to Christ, there's great joy. Now, this is quite a journey. All the way from Antioch, through Phoenicia, through Samaria, to Jerusalem. And while Antioch is north of Jerusalem, you always go up to Jerusalem. Now today, it's about 250 miles. We could jump in our car, be there in about four hours, no big deal. They didn't have cars, so it was quite a long journey. So Paul and Barnabas and their traveling companions, they set out on this journey. And they go to these churches that they've started. And people are excited to hear that more and more people are coming to faith in Christ. This news brought them great, great joy. So before getting to our next point, I want you to think about an experience that you had recently that you really enjoyed. What's something that you did or an experience you had that was, it was just a lot of fun, you really enjoyed it? Well, I mentioned the shrimp I had last night, but when I was writing this, I was thinking of a, of a different thing. A friend of mine took me to this barbecue restaurant a few weeks ago. Kind of a theme here, I like food. And I had this beef brisket, and I had some St. Louis ribs, some coleslaw, and some sweet tea, and you know what, I really enjoyed it. It was really good barbecue from the south side of Chicago. So you know what? I'm taking two of my buddies there next week so that they can experience the same thing I did. You see, when we share, our, share the gospel, we get, we get to share good news that we've experienced. It's not merely something we ought to do, it's something we get to do. Kind of like sharing a new restaurant we, we went to that we really enjoyed, but on such a grander scale. I mean, I like bacon and shrimp and barbecue, but Jesus is a whole lot better. That's what evangelism really is all about. It's something that we get to do to share with other people the hope, the joy that we find in Christ. It's not an argument for us to win. It's just good news we get to share. So we come back to our passage and there's division in the church and a decision needs to be reached about this matter. It's essential for the advancement of the gospel and the unity of the church. And it brings us to our third point. This passage teaches us that to discern the way forward, we must together seek the guidance of the Holy Spirit that we are rooted in the Bible. Now, while the debate is certainly both lively and lengthy, Luke briefly summarizes the proceedings of the day 
that he has learned from interviewing eyewitnesses and reading some source documents, like the letter that would come out of this. I went back to, I think, the first message in this series, which was a little while ago, and Pastor Josh really stressed the importance, the reliability of Luke as a historian. So he did the hard work of talking with people who were there. He read the letter that was sent. So this isn't just hearsay. He talked with people that were there. We can trust what he wrote. He summarizes it. And there are even some clues that he was relying upon the eyewitnesses of others. For one, when he refers to Peter later on, he refers to him as Simeon, his Jewish name, which the Church of Jerusalem, they would have known him as Simeon. The order of Paul and Barnabas switches back and forth, indicating that he is relying upon the eyewitness of accounts of others. So we can trust what Luke is telling us here. So when they come to Jerusalem, they're welcomed by the church, and the apostles and the elders, and Paul and Barnabas and their traveling companions, they declared all that God had done with them. This great news that others have placed their faith in Christ. Seems like they're warmly welcomed. Uh, maybe this is going to go better than we thought. But at some point, they're met with a prepared opposition. We read in Acts 15:5, but some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, It is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. The apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter. Notice that they're discerning this together. We've got the elders, which are the the leaders of the Jerusalem church, and then the apostles like Peter, who are, today they'd be kind of like missionaries that are back home on home assignment. And while in the early days of the Jerusalem church, Peter was the main leader, it seems at this point that actually leadership has shifted from Peter to James, who is the half-brother of Jesus, being the son of Joseph and Mary. In fact, we see that at the end of this, it's James who offers the solution that will carry the day and resolve the dispute, at least for the time being. So after much debate, Luke summarizes three speeches. The first is from Peter, who, picking up in verse 7, says, And after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you, that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. Peter's arguing that just as those in the Jerusalem church received the Holy Spirit, so did their fellow Gentile believers, without any distinction being made. Brings to mind the Pentecost Sunday, the the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, when Peter preaches and that the Holy Spirit is poured out upon the new church. Remember the promise in Acts 1.8, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. And in Acts chapter 2, the day of Pentecost, the church receives the Holy Spirit. 
And then as the gospel marches on into Samaria, there's almost a Samarian day of Pentecost in which the church at Samaria receives the Holy Spirit. And then as the gospel continues to march on in a, uh, outside of Samaria and beyond, that the whole, they, they receive the Holy Spirit. And it's something that, that people from the Jerusalem church who had traveled with Peter observed for themselves, and they were amazed that even these Gentiles, people like most of us in this room, amazed that we could receive the Holy Spirit. So after reminding them of this point, of something that they had agreed upon, Peter says, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? But we believe that we'll be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. This is important for us to hear today. For when we add things to God's word, like who you vote for, or where you send your kids to school, or other things, when we add things to God's word, we're testing God himself. We're at risk of opposing God. In Colossians 2.20, the Apostle Paul writes, why do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting, hear this, self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body. But you know what? They have no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. Now, this does not mean that we should not be concerned with godliness. If you read through Paul's letters, he's very concerned with godliness. In fact, in the book of Galatians, he contrasts the works of the flesh from the fruit of the Spirit. So combating legalism does not give warrant to licentiousness. And second, parents, we have a responsibility to raise our children to know the Lord and to establish discipline in our homes, and that's going to look different from home to home. And a wise parent knows that there are things that are permissible for an adult that are not permissible for children. So we need to give one another grace and understanding as parents manage these things differently. I want to get into a good discussion that leads to a debate and possibly an argument. Just say, when did you give your kid their first smartphone? And that'll get a lively discussion going, I'm sure. And lastly, for the advance of the gospel, we may be compelled to follow a group's cultural norms in order to reach them with the gospel. Notice that the argument is not that Jewish Christians should not follow the dietary restrictions. The argument is that they can't force Gentile Christians to do that. They can't force other believers to do that. In the AFCA, we have some sayings that have served us well over the years. Here are a few of them. How stands it written? In other words, where is what you're saying, where is what you're teaching in this word, the Bible? For believers only, but all believers. We have a, a call to take the gospel to everyone. And that anyone who believes in Christ, that they're welcome to membership in our churches. And lastly, the significance of silence. Our 
former president of the UFA, Arnold T. Olson, wrote this book. And he says, I quote, we have tried not to place one view against another, but catch this, to reveal those areas in which they agree and how believers have found that what they have in common is much more important than the minor differences. That's the ethos of the EFCA. I believe it's consistent with Peter's plea and the values of this church. So after Peter finishes his speech, Paul and Barnabas speak. It's kind of interesting. They kind of stirred everything up, and at least from what Luke says, very little of what they said is quoted. And the, we read, and they listened to Barnabas and Paul as they related what signs and wonders had God had done through them among the Gentiles. So while Peter stressed that the Gentiles had received the Holy Spirit, Paul and Barnabas are stressing here that signs and wonders have been worked amongst the Gentiles, both indicating that Gentiles are part of this new thing called the church. So what we've read so far highlights the importance of discerning what God is doing through the guidance of the Holy Spirit. We need to observe what, how God is at work in the world around us, and then we not, must take it and, and search this word to see how it compares to what we read. And now we come to James' speech. We see the importance of seeking out what God's word has to say. James replied, Brothers, Oops, there we go, there we go, all right. Listen to me, Simeon has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. The Greek term for peoples here is laos. It's significant because it often refers in the Old Testament to the people of God. And here, James is referring to Gentiles as the people of God. In other words, God has received for himself a people from among the Gentiles who represent God and bear his name in the world. He goes on to say, the words of the prophets agree. So although he's going to quote just from one prophet, Amos, He's saying that all the prophets agree on this, and Amos is just an example of this. We read, after this, I will return and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins and I will restore it. That the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord and all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from of old. In essence, James is declaring that God has promised the Gentile inclusion through his prophets, and now God is fulfilling that promise. In fact, he said to Abraham, long before the law was given, that he will be a blessing to the nations. That day has come. James finishes his speech with this compromise proposal that carries the day. Therefore, my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God. 
but should write to them to abstain from the things polluted by idols and from sexual immorality and from what has been strangled and from blood. I'm guessing if we had a Jerusalem council today, we might have some different things in the list. But there's a clue in what he says to understanding that he's talking about more than simply keeping the dietary restrictions and other things in the Mosaic law. It's his reference to idols. And it's this reference that gives us a clue that James wants to address concerns related to idol worship that go beyond merely keeping Jewish dietary regulations. The reference to sexual immorality in this context likely referred to a religious dimension. You see, at the time, some people, some religions worshipped God through temple prostitution. This was going on in the culture at the time. And so, flee from those things, James is saying from idol worship. Reference to things strangled was likely a reference to pagan animal sacrifices common amongst Gentiles at the time. The reference to blood, well, a reference to a prohibition in Leviticus 17 also referred to the practice of pagan priests who would lick or drink the blood of a sacrifice. So these things are telling these new believers that if leaving idolatry, to leave all those practices, those things that you worship, leave them behind you, and fix your eyes squarely on Jesus, your Lord and Savior. That's the thrust of what James is saying here, to give encouragement to these new believers. And by so doing, would allow for the advancement of the gospel and the unity of the church. Brings us to our fourth and final point as, as we wrap up here this morning. As Christians, we must lovingly give up our preferences for the advancement of the gospel and the unity of the church. Notice that the solution of the Jerusalem Council required compromise and sensitivity from both Jewish and Gentile believers. The more conservative Jewish believers, the Pharisees who wanted to require Gentiles to keep all the requirements of the Mosaic law, they did not win the day. But there's no indication they were kicked out of the church. While they were rebuked for going to Antioch without authorization, James did address some of their concerns. And Gentiles were asked to abstain from some things, to flee from their idol worship, and to have sensitivity to some of these dietary things so that table fellowship between Jewish believers and Gentile believers could be maintained. It seemed good to the apostles and the elders with the whole church to choose men from among them and send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. 
They want to encourage the church at Antioch. So they sent people from the Jerusalem church to testify to what was written in the letter that it was true. We go on to read, for it has seemed good to us. I'm sorry, for it has has seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay on you no greater burden than these requirements, things that we've already touched on. Which brings us back to our fourth and final point. Uh, fourth and final point. As Christians, we must lovingly give up our preferences for the advancement of the gospel and the unity of the church. And so I could list 20 things of what you shouldn't add on to the gospel. But I want to turn your attention to your church's fifth core values. If you pull out your bulletin, um, you read the fifth core value here of Wawa C. Did I get that right? Wawa. It's not Wawa, it's Wawa. Wawa C. All right. Of Wawa C. Of no sacred cows. We read here's what we mean by that. Jesus is sacred. God's word is sacred. The gospel is sacred. But our opinions, our methods, preferences, and traditions are not. Therefore, we hold those secondary things in an open hand with a loose grip. Are willing to let go of any of them if more people can experience life change through the gospel. We're committed to having no sacred cows. And here are three types of sacred cows we must avoid. Loving tradition more than Jesus and his word. We see that was the biggest issue that the, these Pharisees who had placed their faith in Christ had done. That they loved their tradition more than Jesus and his word. Second, following people before Jesus. It's easy in this day to make much of our favorite Christian preacher, after Pastor Josh, of course. But it's got to all be about, about Jesus. And third, choosing my preference over Jesus' mission. My friends, it's not about us, it's about Jesus, it's about the gospel alone. It's about the great joy that we have found through faith in Christ and the great joy it is to share it with others. Let's pray.